Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing Theorists in the Desert. What is it? Six? Seven? Six. I'm Braden. I'm Zell. <laughs> I'm Dan. Uh, I'm Andrew. And tonight we got a very special guest with us, Richard Dolan. He, can you see him? There he is. Richard Dolan, welcome to the show. Hi, Zell. Thanks for having me on with your crew. Right Zell on. and the boys. Zell <laughs> the <Yeah>. boys. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who do not know who Richard Dolan is, he is among the world's leading UFO researchers, historians, and publishers. He has written a number of classics for the field. UFO is in the National Security State, two volumes, AD, After Disclosure, which discusses what would happen if UFO secrecy were to end, and UFOs for the 21st century, a perfect overview for the whole subject. Welcome to the show, Richard Dolan. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Sal. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. Awesome. Yeah, I took this interview last minute. So just let's get started. What uh what got you down this path? What was the catalyst that got you started down the oh UFO God. research? If you could I know that's a hard question, but if you could if you could entertain it. <laughs> We're obligated to ask you this through contact in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> it's it's uh, not that complicated. I was uh I had the illusion many, many years ago that I wanted to teach at a university. And so I was working on a PhD in history in Cold War studies. So Harry Truman, the Russians, the birth of the CIA, everything having to do with the world of national security in 1950. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. But I was into it at the time. And we're talking early 1990s. And um, and I stumbled into the UFO subject. It's, it was that simple. Um, one one part of it was seeing a, a UFO conspiracy book on a bookshelf, a great book by Timothy Good called Above Top Secret, mm. the Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. I thought, oh, wow, Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. Even in the 90s, people had heard claims of a UFO cover-up. I mean, you know, we had known that much. So I, I remembered flipping through the book thinking, like, I'd recognize all of the names that he had in there. But I had not read about them in a UFO context, so that was intriguing to me. I thought, wow, this is like an alternate reality. And then at the same time, I was exploring the early internet, all the news groups. There was no web, but there were a lot of people yelling and screaming at each other. And there were UFO groups out there. And I just became, I don't know, it was this thing. I just became absolutely obsessed. And um, I didn't like having a big question mark hanging over my head. Like, here I am studying the world of President Harry Truman. And even then, like I realized in the UFO lore, uh, it was all about the 1940s and Roswell and all of these claims. And I thought, I would like to know. I don't want to, I don't want to have this big question mark. So I thought I would spend a couple of months of my life to resolve the whole thing. And that was 26, 27, whatever years ago. And here I am. Awesome. Down the path, down the rabbit hole you went. That's what exactly what it was, down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I mean, very quickly I realized, oh, wow, this actually is a serious thing. Oh, there were, wow, military encounters with these objects over sensitive airspace, restricted airspace, things like this. And, oh, wow, they did take it seriously. Oh, while they were telling the public there was nothing to it. So at that moment, I, I thought there's something here. And and the other thing that, that bugged me about it back then was that the academic community, which I was very involved in at that time, just totally ignored UFOs. And I thought, this actually seems serious. And even and, and you know, when you have three and four star generals and CIA scientific directors and all of these people taking it seriously, I thought, where's where's the academic work on this? Like even if these people were mistakenly interested in UFOs. How is that not of historical interest? So 
that's what started me. And uh, what I quickly realized is that there's no easy solution to UFOs. Like this is a subject that truly shatters your paradigm of reality. And then it does it again. And then it does it a third time and a fourth and a fifth. And it never stops. It just keeps breaking apart what you think reality is. Well, I know, I know that's happened to lots of us too. It's like, as you dig deeper and deeper and go, you start to make these connections that you didn't see earlier on when you start to get into it. And as you learn new information, you go, well, this little piece fits into this little bit that I learned, you know, years ago. And it just, you kind of get a cascade effect. So yeah, it's, we've kind of experienced totally. the same thing with this show. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well said. That's what happened to me. I mean, I, you know, uh, I thought I wanted to answer one little question, which was, did the top levels of the American national security community, did they take this subject seriously or not? At that time, we're talking 1993, 94, 94. Yeah. That's all I wanted to know. I didn't want to know, like, is this even real? I wasn't even yeah. there yet. Yeah. I just wanted to know, is this something that was of historical uh, interest? And if so, why had I never read about it in any like serious scholarly work? Right. And so I went in very, very limited way. And, but what I discovered is like, oh no, this is actually quite serious. And then that opened up all these other questions. Like where, where were the other professors and scholars? Where was the media? Where are the politicians? Like, where is everyone? You got this phenomenon going on here. That's clearly getting a lot of people concerned, like phrases like grave concern and perturbed by implications of phenomenon. We're coming up in these classified memos I'm reading. So I'm thinking, where's the official scholarly intellectual community here? Where the hell are they? So that gets you into studying all other systems of control. And I studied things like Operation Mockingbird, which was the CIA's domination of US mainstream media. And then you just go on and on and on. So like, it's true. That one question led to dozens of other questions and dozens of other rabbit holes. So, yeah, I think like to your point, um, I, I think, it, yeah, there is no easy question to UFOs because like you said, and, and taking from what you what you've been saying, like the UFO phenomenon encompasses a lot of different areas of study. Um, I, like I could ask you, where would you want to publish a study like this? What which like facet of academia <laughs> would would concentrate oh my God. on UFOs? Is it aerospace? Is it psychology? Is it sociology? Is it geopolitics? Like where does it fit in? Or what? Do, what do you? I think? love that. I mean, that's I've asked that question many times over the years. Like seriously, like it's a problem. You know, when I was closer to the academic world, I would ask that a lot. Like, what department would be the best department to take UFOs, or should it get its own department? Like. My training is in history, so there's definitely a place to study the history of UFO subject, absolutely. But there's countless different sciences. I mean, um, from photo imaging, right, to uh, biology, if you want to get into genetics, uh, you know, ideas about hybrids and things like that, mm -hmm. or uh, physical science, um, dealing with this, the study of what these objects, these flying saucers might be made out of, material science or propulsion or energy. Um, and it goes on and on and on. It, it never stops. It's an all-encompassing subject that, and here's the other thing about it. Like for years and years, it's, it's different now because the subject's getting a bit more respect, a little more love from the establishment media. But for so many years when I was studying, it was just ridiculed and dismissed. And I kept thinking, any subject that touches upon so many leading edge 
and fascinating issues of our world in science and in history and in politics. Let's not forget that. Like we're talking about something that's absolutely profound. No kidding. And of the highest level of interest. And so that's the great discrepancy that I've always been struck by, which is that how astonishing this subject is and how even now in 2021, how low level uh, how low the level of conversation about it is it is in most mainstream establishment sources. Like they just don't even begin to get into the deep issues of what's going on with this subject. And why do you think it was like, why do you think initially it was lumped in with, you know, like I'm assuming at, especially in the nineties when you first started, why do you think it was lumped in with conspiracy theories? Cause like, you know, conspiracy theories, they were created with negative connotations, right? Like they've, they've always yeah. been kind of, it's always been this negative you know, connotation well, let's, let's around talk about them. conspiracy theory. Absolutely. So the phrase, as far as I've been able to determine, and uh, if listeners can correct me, I would love to be corrected. But I believe that the phrase conspiracy theory actually really hit, uh, got airborne, you could say, in 1967 in a CIA memo. That's for real. So in 1967, the CIA was worried about uh, alternative theories of the JFK assassination. Mm. This is all fact. I wonder and why. at one point, <laughs> the, a memo came out of the CIA that that was worried about this. And like, what are we going to do about all these people starting to think different thoughts about JFK? We, we don't want that. And so, you know, the CIA did what they do best, which is they assume let's work with major media and we will smear people who do that with the phrase conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists. And that's literally what happened. Now, it's possible that that phrase existed earlier, but I'm not aware of it. I've looked. What I do know is that the CIA explicitly tried to do this. So what you now see is like when you get these dumb, dumb people in mainstream media talking about conspiracy theories dismissively, they are <laughs> – this is crazy to say, but they are literally doing the CIA's work, which for me to say that makes me a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> weirdest sort of irony. <laughs> but but to answer your question, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s, it was very obvious that this phenomenon was of – tremendous significance and seriousness to the United States military and the intelligence community. And that's not a matter of speculation. That's a matter of proof. The documents prove it. We've got enough declassified statements that, that make this very clear. And so what obviously had to be done was if they didn't want this to be, to be discussed in the mainstream, and they did not, because this is a difficult problem, the best thing that they could do is to encourage major media of that time to invest the subject with ridicule, and that's precisely what happened. And we know this happened, for example, in the 1953 infamous Robertson Panel Report, which was a CIA-sponsored study of this, and their conclusion was, yeah, we have to debunk this in the public. And they've done that ever since. Um, and so what you have are, you know, I mean, Americans particularly don't like to, uh, and certainly didn't like to think that their media was controlled by the CIA or the government, but the fact is there's been a tremendous amount of influence over mainstream media for years and generations and lifetimes. And that's just the reality. So I think that's the answer is that there's been, you know, we don't have a generic uh, ground up culture. A lot of our culture is actually imposed top down. I'm totally convinced. You've got major corporations that have tremendous power that are in bed with the national security community, and they set a lot of the agenda. And that's been the case it's in the 1940s and 50s as well. And I think that's what we're dealing with. Right. Now, I, I want to ask you while we have you on here, because for the first time in my life, UFOs, like 
these phenomenon are at in the mainstream the most they've ever been. And it started yeah. back in 2017 with the New York Times, the first mainstream people to put out the black budget, the ATIP program with Luis Elizondo and all the other names to go along with it. And then it took a couple of years for the, the military to finally say that these videos were indeed real after ridicule and, you know, smearing Elizondo and such. And then we just get, you know, we get last summer, they start talking about it more and we just get now, I mean, it hasn't fully been released, but like the Pentagon briefing on like what, what yeah. on that, uh, in the back end of the COVID stuff. Yeah, so, that's right. Got snuck in there by, uh, by President Trump. So what, what's going well, on with that? Well, it's a fascinating thing. Like, we're in a completely new era now. Since 2017, it's totally true. And you mentioned the New York Times. They did two articles in December of 2017. And really that, I believe, comes down to a very small group of people. I would say the folks over at To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, TTSA, that's Tom DeLonge, Elizondo, Chris Mellon, Hal Putoff, Steve Justice, and um, a few others. And then uh, journalists working with the New York Times, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal particularly, I think, really fought to get those articles in there. This is my understanding of it. So you had a small group of people coordinating uh, to break this story. And then the New York Times, being what the New York Times is, made sure that there were skeptical, nonsensical statements put into those two articles. But uh, it's true. Like What that did was it allowed the rest of our establishment to speak about UFOs, and that is because the New York Times is the Pravda of the of the American system. You know how Pravda was with the old Soviet Union, the the voice of the established opinion. That's what the New York Times did. So they made it permissible for people to talk about it. And actually, what's happened is that we've seen. I don't know if we want to call it an explosion, but definitely a real opening of conversations about this from. The upper level mainstream media, you've got Tucker Carlson at Fox t talking to Luis Elizondo about UFO crash retrievals, for God's sake. Like, right. who would have thought that? Uh, there still hasn't been enough of this, but it's certainly more than I would have predicted five years ago. And where that's going to go is a really good question. Now, the next step is this new UAP task force report that you were just mentioning, Zell. And, um, I do have a little bit of word. I mean, we've we're hearing more and more like what's going to be in this report. So the word is that it'll be seventy eight pages. Um, I assume a certain percentage of that will be padding. So maybe let's say fifty pages of actual content, which is not a lot, right. not a lot. And um, and we're told that the at least one conclusion is that there's not any evidence to show that this is U.S. secret text. So the number of reports. Originally, the New York Times a, a couple of weeks ago said that there were going to be 120 cases. I'm now told that, that it'll be fewer than that. I don't know how much fewer. Right. So sure, uh, it could be kind of skimpy. It was 120. And then, yeah. And then, yeah, I think that's the the main impression that we've been getting is that it's going to be some type of, it's, it basically says they're not ours or is what the impression is. They're, they're definitely not, or at least not the U.S. militaries. Like that's kind of. Yeah. But keep in mind. Like, you know, uh, Elizondo pointed this out. He said this to me personally, and I think he said this publicly. Um, you know, it often can take six months for people to get the clearances to actually do a proper investigation. And they're given six months. You, you're probably talking about a couple of guys, a couple of people with, you know, you're going through this labyrinth, this this maze of the Pentagon. And a lot of these places to get information out are probably not going to be easy. So it's really questionable to ask, like, how many, how much information genuinely can 
can they get access to? So the real question is, is this task force, as it is called, truly able to get a sufficient amount of information to make an accurate determination? Is this ours? Is this Russian, Chinese, or extraterrestrial, or something else? I think the answer is probably not. Mm. Although, realistically, look, you look at the Tic Tac UFO case of 2004, all right? If you want to just take it at face value, you got David Fravor and the other witnesses' testimony. You've got uh, testimony of people like Kevin Day, who was running all the radar out of the USS Princeton. Yep. Um, a lot of detail. There's no one in hell who's going to say that was Russian or Chinese. There's not a chance. And everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. When you get Fravor's testimony that this thing took off and was out of his line of vision within two seconds, I mean, I'm estimating we're talking 10,000 miles per hour departure speed. That's outrageous. It's insane. But, yeah. yet, but yet, these speeds have been tracked for decades and decades. I have reports from the 1940s that talk about speeds of 18,000 miles per hour, tracked with mm-hmm. high-quality instrumentation. This is not new. So when you look at the Tic Tac report, which is supposedly being covered in this task force report, how in God's name are they going to say that this is anything other than extraterrestrial? The the Chinese didn't have any capability like this in 04. And the Russians, I can tell you geopolitically, not a snowball's chance in hell would the Russians have been responsible for something like that in 2004. There was like, there was, you know, some people theorize that. During like, uh, you know, we took in Operation High Jump, we we grabbed all the scientists to do the V2 rockets, but the Russians may have grabbed uh, scientists with, yeah, in Osavayakim. I'm talking about paperclip? Were, Not yeah, yeah paper were, sorry, pi- yeah. paperclip, yes. Yeah. And uh, they grabbed scientists that were, you know, into propulsion and aerospace engineers. And so there was, you know, I've read uh, Annie Jacobson's book where she kind of touches on that where, you know, pe- perhaps Russians did have these capabilities. But I think at this point in time, like that would have become known. Yeah. That they were at this level of way beyond the rest of the world. And I just don't see that. Like it it doesn't make it doesn't really pass the sniff test. When you look at the German the Germans were really great at documenting pretty much everything they did. Like they documented the Holocaust, for God's sake. They documented all of their all of their secret tech, like the V, the V one and V two rockets, we've got total documentation on that. The uh, Horton HO two twenty nine, which was like the flying wing design, which yep. was an amazing futuristic aircraft. Like we've got all the data on that, and um, you know all of the advanced Messerschmitt crafts, all of that. But we don't really have. <laughs> there's no data on the Glock, the Bell, and there's hardly. There's like nothing on. Like a lot of the German flying saucer stuff. Yeah, we know about Victor Schauberger, and he he did design, he did build, I think, two prototype disc-shaped airframes. So the Germans were doing some very unusual physics, or they were looking into unusual physics. They had a thing against so-called Jewish physics. This is true. So like that left Einstein out of the loop, and, th- and that was <laughs> not good for the German scientific community. But it did mean that they were they were looking at unusual things. But the fact is that there's not, there's really not a whole lot to hang your head on in terms of like German flying saucers. And so people like to talk about this a lot. And I've looked into it. My my colleague and friend Joseph Farrell, of course, looked into it a lot. But I'll just say for myself, I just don't see, I see no infrastructure after the war that's going to be building these flying saucers from where? From Argentina, from Antarctica. I hear people talk about this. Right. And there's just nothing there. 
So what are, what are the chances that this is perhaps like, so, I mean, of course the, the report could go out and like you said, there's going to be a bunch of padding, but also within there, I'm sure there's going to be room for, you know, them to use their, the government, government ease, you know, the, uh, the, the hedging your bet language, you know, being a little bit more ambiguous and stuff where they could perhaps say, this is not us military tech, but that still doesn't discount. That doesn't, that doesn't automatically disqualify, you know, uh, secret DARPA projects or, um, you know, Lockheed Martin or, you know, a private company of some type that this is a proof of concept or something like that. Like, what what do you th- what are your views on that? Yeah. Like, what do you think That's, of the possibilities or, you know, probability that could happen? That's an excellent point you're making. Like, they're going to be very lawyerly in their mm-hmm. wording. Legalese. This. That's what I meant. Yeah. Everyone's got CYA. <laughs> like, cover your ass. And uh, they will certainly seek to do that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to read that carefully. But. Right now, all we know is that the word is that they're going to be denying that it's U.S. secret black budget tech. But your point about Lockheed or your point about private contractors, that's a very good point because you could see them leaving that as a loophole, right? And, I mean, everyone at this point probably knows that Lockheed does have access to (laughs) alien disks and has been reverse – or attempting to reverse engineer this for a long time. In my opinion, that's that's absolutely the case. And I think many people – understand that to be true. And so there's always that as a possibility, sure. Um, I would be very surprised if this report tries to implicate the Chinese or the Russians, because that would be very geopolitically incendiary. I mean, there's enough going on right now with China in the South China Sea and with Russia <laughs> over in, uh, you know, Eastern Ukraine. I, I cannot think that this report would want to inflame any of those tensions, particularly on you know, what I think is limited evidence anyway. Right. So I don't know what they're going to go. I mean, I think they're going to be very careful. The fact is, when you scratch the surface of the intelligence community and you talk to people who actually have familiarity with the UFO phenomenon, they all know, like, they all know that this is not from here. They all know we're being visited or monitored or infiltrated or whatever. Like, this is not controversial. So the problem is, how do they continue to deny that they will continue to deny that as long as they can for years and years if they can wouldn't it be extremely apparent though if it was made from terrestrial material or not like that's what wouldn't that be even if it was russian or chinese you'd be able to tell if this is material that is found on this planet well and like we have an understanding of physics (laughs) in one of the videos that jeremy corbell released i mean there was there were many claims that you know the, the flashing lights of one of the triangles was clearly something that we met, like a navigation light. Right. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you're an alien and you're just trying to screw around in U.S. airspace, maybe you'll put navigation lights on. Who the hell? Who knows, frankly? Um, but in. the fact is, what we've learned about some of the reports from 2019 and 2020, which have recently come out, and I hope that they will be in this report, is that we're talking swarms. Mm. you got U.S. battleship maneuvers all right, this is serious stuff, like off the coast of Southern California or off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia. Like, you're not going to just send in swarms of drones day after day, Repetitive, which is yeah. what we are now being told, and screwing with battleships that have Aegis-class electronic intercept systems that are going to screw you up. Those things are very substantial. So if you're going to do this day after day, I, I mean, there's just no geopolitical answer for that as to who's going to be responsible, whether it's our own black budget tech 
or China or Russia? There's not a good answer. Well, and there's like there's the thing of like if they're man if they're mancraft, these things are operating like they would have to solve a problem of not turning the pilots into mashed potatoes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on yeah, these accelerations yeah. and maneuvers and how they can, you know, uh, become these transmedium crafts where they're entering water and air effortlessly. Uh, not to mention that, like, you know, to your point of like, why wouldn't they come down and screw with us and put these navigational lights on? Like we do that to monkeys. Like we, we put robotic monkeys into, to, you know, video camera, their society, Right. And they're, they all know something's up with this weird monkey that we send in. Uh, yeah. So like, you know, why something else of a higher intelligent and a higher capability of us wouldn't do the same to us, but like, Hey, look, they fly around the skies. They have these lights. Let's do the same thing. Right. We'll blend in. They won't know they're dumb. That's actually a really good point with the, yeah, the monkeys. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, I, you know, it's frustrating because everyone loves to assume that they, they they can think for the aliens or they can think for, uh, you know, whoever's behind this. So they assume, oh, navigation's like, well, it has to be ours. But when you're swarming a U.S. battle battle group, like, we got to come up with something better than that because that's not an easy thing to explain. Yeah, no kidding. Not an easy thing to explain. So I don't know. I think I think my take on this task force is that they're going to do the typical bureaucratic, you know, legalistic language. Um, they'll they'll probably leave the door open for this as a mysterious phenomenon, which is much farther along than we've been, you know, even five years ago. So that's a good thing. Yeah. But uh, there are many, many, like if if you were in charge of managing this secret, right? So let's say you, because the Pentagon and the intelligence community is not monolithic, so there's obviously factions. There has always been a intense secrecy faction. You read the old books of Donald Kehoe in the 1950s, and he talked about this, the secrecy group. But there were also individuals within the military who did not support the secrecy, and they believed in getting the information out. That's always been the case. What I personally think has happened is that the information that we've seen come out in the last few years has been the result of such a faction. This is my opinion. So I don't see this as an op. Some people are talking about disinformation, PSYOP. I don't believe that. It doesn't mean that there's total truthfulness about this. There's clearly not. I mean, I think the, like folks like Elizondo, are, he obviously knows much, much more than what he's saying officially. Chris Mellon, same thing. But, but I think this is the result of a faction, and I think that there are enemies to this faction and they will hold the Alamo as long as they can. And there are many, uh, there are many layers and places to defend. Like right now, we're at the place of well, there's something out there we don't know what it is. That's obviously fic fiction, but they're maintaining it. But there are many other um, lines of defense, so to speak, that can be held for a long time before we get into things like crash retrievals and like obvious cover-up and alien bodies and all that kind of thing so i think i think this defense will go on for quite a while if if they're able to defend this for five years they'll do it if they can do it for 50 years they'll do that as well they'll do it as long as they can right now so speculation aside now what do you after all your years and all the books you've written what is your what's your et hypothesis what are yeah. if these if these are not you know, these are not a black budget, you know, the new age SR-71 Blackbird that we had no idea about for a while. Like, it's, it's not a new tech that, we're, like, it doesn't seem to be. It's not. 
what uh, what do you what do you think? Yeah, we we've had look, we've had very well measured instrument recorded reports of objects doing the exact same maneuvers back in the 1940s. I read I read a very credible record, report in the Canadian National Archives from 1936 Northwest Territory middle of nowhere perfect tic tac UFO guy was doing aerial reconnaissance of the Northwest Territories for the right. Canadian government. He looked up and saw this object directly above him, instant acceleration, gone, 1936. This has been around for a long time. What I believe is that the monitoring of the human species has gone in two phases. So phase one is the one that lasted for thousands of years. And I think there was a group that very quietly in the background just kept an eye on us. And I think that there every now and then, have been sightings and maybe even encounters with other beings that look kind of human, but they're not human. And I think that there's been a group that's watched us and perhaps monitored us for many, many, many years. But what I think happened is that the human race, our civilization, has gone through a transition. And you know, you could say it started when we discovered science a couple of centuries ago, but it really took off, let's say, 150 years ago, 19th century, with all of our industrialization, where you get you know, trains, planes, automobiles, radio, television, computers, nuclear weapons, missiles, iPhones, internet, the whole thing. Right. Like you think about how quickly, I mean, we existed for thousands of years with a society of horses pulling wooden carts and suddenly, boom, snap of a finger, we're now doing all of this. Our capabilities as a species has gone exponential. It's not incremental. So anyone who's been able to observe us can obviously see that we're about to leap right into their world. So I think we're bringing the whole neighborhood in. And that includes gray aliens, probably reptilians, probably who the hell knows what else. So some of these groups might be predisposed to be friendly toward us and others. I think at least one group is not. That's my opinion, just from looking at the information that's there. So where we are, I mean, we're one generation away from having like strong universal generative artificial intelligence that's basically going to run our whole planet. Uh, 24-7, 5G, 6G, 7G surveillance, no privacy. You can say goodbye to that for the rest of all time. And we're going to turn ourselves into one big giant anthill. That's the future of humanity. We're like one big ant farm. So uh, we're going to become like the aliens that we've been observing all this time. That's what I believe. I wrote a book. In fact, uh, I wrote a book called The Alien Agenda just last fall in which I kind of laid this out. So I, I argued we're about to enter what I believe is the fourth stage of humanity. Let's call it the transhumanist stage. Go from hunting yeah. and gathering to agriculture to science to transhumanism. That's fourth, fourth stage, and we're entering it now. And it's uh, digital control, data crunching. It's all the stuff that we're seeing now. And I think that that's what's got their interest and um, – and what that means in terms of their policy is a really interesting thing, and I can we can speculate about it. But I think that is why we're seeing tremendous amounts of UFO activity, alien encounters, and the like. This, we're not dealing, in your opinion, with one, you know, scientific species who has traversed time or space to come here and where their science project. They the whole galactic neighborhood seems to be aware of like humanity's evolution. It's my opinion. I mean, yeah. I, I can't know, but it makes sense to me. That uh, I mean, when you look at the evidentiary data, so you have all of these different. There's a very wide variety of types of beings that people have described, but mm -hmm. but within it's not an infinite variety. I mean, within reason. So you've got a lot of these beings are human or human-looking. A lot of them look like gray aliens, tall and short. 
that that takes up the majority of them right there. And then you've got a, a certain number that look uh, more insect-like. You've got a certain number that are described as reptilian in one way or another. And then you got what I call the kitchen sink. You got like a wide variety of like all these other that are reported much more, less frequently. I don't know what to think about them. I don't know, you know, to what extent can they screw with your perception and make you think you've seen something that you didn't see? I don't know. Right. But I think that there's a few basic types, and I think the grays and the insectolins, I think they may be related, as David Jacobs hypothesized. He might be right. But I think they're latecomers. I think we've seen them for maybe the last hundred years, and that's about it. And uh, I think there have been human-like beings that have monitored us for many, many years. And that's what I think. I mean, look, we're all doing counterintelligence here, trying to figure this out the best we can, and I'm just giving my best theory. But I would confidently say that there's at least um, at least a couple of different groups that are here and that they are – like I could speculate what they're like and I might be right and I might be wrong. But I suspect that they are at least – at the very least concerned about what we might do because we're actually going to get to close to their level really soon. Like well, I think we have this mistaken idea that oh we're so far behind them we must seem like insects, and I think that's total BS. I think that we're actually we've gone exponential. We're about to produce very very strong post singularity AI, very very strong nanotech, very strong bioengineering, um, and a lot of other things in terms of communication and data analysis. That it this is not a a linear progression. We're no. doing a leap, and I think we're going to be almost at a level of parity to some of these other groups. And I think that that might, if I were them, I would be concerned. You look at these humans. We're creative. We're kind of aggressive. We uh, have a lot of initiative. We like to throw our weight around. Uh, we might be an annoyance. Yeah. We're violent. We can we can reverse engineer just about anything we find. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. dangerous. I don't think we're the only violent species, by the way. <laughs> Like we like to diss ourselves all the time. Like, oh, we can't get our shit together. We can't get. It. We're so violent. And um, I, I think there are probably other species out there that are similar. Well, oh, a, without a doubt, a lot of people theorize that like the very reason humanity has evolved to our point is through our conflict. Because through conflict becomes like comes innovation. So like just the yeah. very conflict between humanity seems to have progressed us forward. Not only in like you know arms race or anything, but through like medicine and like anatomy. Like a lot. What you say is absolutely true. There's not even a question about it. Surgeon generals in the army, like those, like from the world wars, like that's most of our surgeries because people are just doing it on the battlefield, just in the huge leaps and bounds and, you know. Absolutely. So yeah, conflict. This is a really weird thing. Like you get a lot of uh, contactees will say things like, well, the aliens want us to to be less aggressive. They want us to be nice and loving and, you know, upgrade our frequency and ascend to a higher level and so forth. Uh, but in fact, you know, you really have to, I wonder sometimes, like, are those beings just trying to demoralize the local population <laughs> and tell them, you suck, you're terrible, you're violent, you've got to change your ways. Seriously, disarm. And I don't know what I think about that, but it's actually something to consider because, as you were just saying, like, our native aggression, like, we're biological creatures, we're not robots, we're not artificially intelligent algorithms. We're actually like flesh and blood. We're born, we grow, we have emotions, we die. And and we struggle for survival. 
like we forget that because we have a nice society now that like provides things for us. But the way that we have always been, we're hardwired to struggle to survive. And that's actually our secret power. That's like our secret weapon is like our ability to, to, uh, are you there? I'm seeing someone. Oh, looked like you cut out for a second oh, there. It might've, but we're back. I just think that that's actually an amazing thing about us. And the, the fact that we do struggle and that we fail and that we fall flat on our face and we get back up, like that's an amazing thing about us. And, um, if I were a super intelligent telepathic alien, I might be a little concerned about this upstart human species that's just now discovering like all the secrets of the kingdom through science. Yeah. And it's, I, yeah, I could agree with you on some of those points. And then, but some of me parts would wonder that a super intelligent, you know, non-human intelligence that has, you know, crossed the vast distances between stars or an interstellar race, if, if they're at least coming here, and they're able to communicate at least, you know, if they're not residents of our immediate solar system, like if they don't live on Neptune or you know, on the moons mm -hmm. of Jupiter or something like that, like they would have to be able to communicate with their central hub or whatever like that. So I would assume they have some kind of technology that is, you know, fathoms, you know, huge leaps beyond what we could possibly. Science fiction. Uh, it, it, science moment. fiction stuff, yeah. you know. It's something on par with like godlike abilities, masteries of, you know, physics that we haven't even uh, started or maybe we've just started to understand. And I, I agree with you that we are, you know, we're we're making huge leaps and bounds in our comprehension of the physical sciences of uh, of our of our minds that we barely comprehended in the first place. Like we're just mapping out the parts of the brain and how they interact with each other. Like if you have yeah. a race that's out there traveling between between star systems or even galaxies like i would see if it, if they saw us like wiping us out would not be that hard a challenge for them like i, I we could we can i i feel like we could put these things out there like we could we could come with these innovations we could make a scientific breakthrough but then applying that would take us years and in that time they would have the i would think they would have the time to be like okay how are we going to deal with them yeah, maybe. But think about where we were. Compare the world to 100 years ago. It's so like the 1920s. Yeah. So like the 1920s was a pretty advanced period. I mean, they had cars. We had motion pictures. They were all in lockdown from a pandemic. But yeah, <laughs> they handled their pandemic better than we did. That's for sure. So like they actually had a lot going on. But you compare scientifically and in terms of our technology and what we know. I mean, it's it's no comparison. Like they would be, they would be astonished at where, like, some of the things that we we know, they would probably be horrified by a lot of the things about us as well. But so think where we could be in 100 years in terms of what we know about superluminal communications or, you know, quantum communications or non-locality, you know, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance and all of these concepts that we're just grasping now um, or things like space-time metric engineering. That's one of the papers. Hal Puthoff wrote that paper for the ATIP program. Uh, about a decade ago. Like, we're just starting this, but in a mere century from now, with very strong AI programs and who knows what other tools we'll have, we, I don't know, like, we really might be more orders of magnitude even beyond where we are now and much, potentially much closer to these other 
highly advanced beings. Is this just consider it's possible? What if what if the knowledge you achieve gets to a certain plateau and then you're done? Like what if that's actually true? Like what if knowledge doesn't go on for an infinite period of time? What if there's a limit to like the laws of nature than the laws of physics? Like if that's true, maybe they've already gotten it and they've mastered it. And what if we're about to master it? So there might be gradations within that, but we might be on roughly a level playing field. And as time goes by, we may get closer and closer. I'm just putting that out there as a possibility. No, I I like, I like that. I think I'm waiting for the next, uh, I'm really working for the next like material breakthrough, you know, because we're still, it seems like we're still limited by what is it? Moore's law. Like we're still limited by the physical composition of our circuits, of our, like the construction of our technology, like the materials that we use and the way that we use them, that's still limiting us. Like once we get past that and then combined perhaps with the, you know, a super intelligent and hopefully benevolent AI that could put those things into practice or develop some type of construction, uh, uh, some type of construction program. uh, Yeah. We could, we could make that leap. I think that's what I, that's what I'm always waiting for is that giant, that, that big thing is like, we've done it. We have, we have, we have broken the limits on the circuits. We can put, well, you know, this is all, everything's a superconductor now. <laughs> well, on a personal level, not a problem. I mean, yeah. you guys might live to see that. I, I hope that I'm checking out of this mortal coil at that time because I actually don't think I want to be part of that. Um, I actually like being a human being. And what I, what I see in the future is essentially a total transhuman future for our species in which we actually live that reality. Because I I just see that, like, I think that's where we're going. And I don't want to live forever. I don't want to, I don't want to live for 200 or 300 or 500 years. I think I would probably lose my mind. I think we'd we'd probably go insane. And I just don't, um, I don't have that desire. So I'm happy to be born, live, grow old and die and have mysteries in my life and mind. But it is quite possible that future generations are going to be in a very different situation. And um, yeah, I mean, there may be like, I'm sure there'll be great rewards that they will be glad that they have. And I wish them luck. <laughs> I'm like, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, I'll be very happy to live out my life in a very humble, biological, fully biological manner, unenhanced. <laughs> yeah, that's until we summon you back up with our 7G Ouija board to have another interview, but <laughs> bring my head back like on Futurama. Now, Richard, I want to ask you, do you, what do you think about, do you believe that, you know, some government agencies have been working with some of these alien species? I mean, you hear about it all the time of, you know, Dolce Base and these, these groups or organizations. Meeting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, working with them. Do you believe that they, we are currently in some aspects working with maybe some or all of these species. And that's why they're trying to keep it quiet is because, uh, it's not so much, uh, let the public know, but it's, they don't want enemies to know that they have these other species helping them. Definitely the latter, like, um, whether it's species or technology, like I absolutely do believe that the United States at various moments recovered alien tech. And um, 
I think it could go back as, at least as far as 1941. Possibly there was an Italian crash in 1933. I, I've started to look into that in the last few years, and I think that might be legit. U.S. 1941, 1947, 1948, 1953, all of those, I think, happened. And so uh, we got tech. And I think, yes, bodies and I'm inclined to believe that at least there was a, at least one live being that lived probably until 1952. I think I tend to believe that. I can't say I know for sure. Look, I'm just guessing. In terms of collaboration, that's a harder question to answer. There's been, I've read some accounts that strike me as kind of credible. I read Dan Sherman's Above Black, which I thought that's actually quite interesting to me. Um, even, um, you know, the late Charles Hall, um, with his story about you know being out in Nevada in the middle of um, Indian Springs dealing with these tall whites as he called them, um, I think it's actually true. So I don't, I don't dismiss it. I think it's it's a definite possibility. How deep the communication goes, that I I don't know. I mean I just don't know. I think that it's it is possible. Yes, and. In fact, I would be surprised if it was a flat no. I would be surprised if it was a hard no. And then just my just a follow-up. Say the this UFO report blows all our expectations way to the water and they just say, Yeah, <laughs> they're you know, they're real, they're out there. That won't happen, but go yeah. on. Right? Yeah. Let's let, <laughs> let's theorize on that for a second. Does it change? Sure. Does it change our way of life instantly? Like what do you think happens if they if they were to do that? Just full disclosure, give drop a surprise. I tried to write a book about this a decade ago and uh my co-author and I, like we had this idea of the avalanche effect. This is absolutely what I believed, which was like, let's say the, the president of the United States comes out and goes to the podium and says, yep, it's actually real. They're here. And so that would start what I thought would be an avalanche effect, which would be, you know, on the assumption that there would be enough media out there with like intelligence and curiosity to ask follow-up questions like, have you kept this secret for so long? And what does that say about the structure of secrecy and who are these other beings? And so I I always had hypothesized that there would be this kind of crazy, almost revolutionary aftermath of disclosure. And what I'm seeing is something different from what I predicted. So what I'm seeing is a kind of drip, drip effect. But actually what I think we're seeing is a faction that's pushing it and another faction that's resisting. So it's like a football game and they're at the 50-yard line. Maybe that's it. So in terms of where, I'm trying to remember what your original question was, I'm sorry. Just like, what would it, would it change? Would, would life oh, yeah. on Earth change with this information? Well, eventually, yes, absolutely. If It depends on how much truth can come out. So if we get enough truth that says, it's real. They're here. We've got some of their flying saucers. We've been studying it for many years. We've got some of their tech, and we've actually made some breakthroughs. Like if that if that goes if it goes that far, then yes, you're talking about a lot of implications, like energy for starters. As as I've been saying for years, like a ten year old kid looking at a zigzagging flying saucer that can instantly accelerate is going to intuit that they're not using gasoline or petroleum to go from one point to another. So implicit in the an understanding of UFOs is a post-petroleum infrastructure in terms of energy, it seems to me, because there's got to be an answer there, whether it's nuclear fusion, hot or cold, or whether it's zero-point energy or something different. I don't know what the answer truly is, but it's not going to take us long to figure it out right. once we acknowledge that this is real. And that 
that will change our world in a significant way right there alone. And then there's going to be like countless other ways in which we will be deeply affected by this new information and it will change our culture and it will change our understanding of even who we are as a species, I think. Yeah. The lot. five of us are just not, we're not going to change. We're just going to say, told you so. <laughs> I'll have, I'll have a few of those days as well. Believe me, I'll enjoy that. Wag my finger a little bit, uh, act all superior. But then, you know, comes the hard work of figuring out like what kind of world are we going to live in? My biggest fear is that we're going to achieve some kind of disclosure while living in a kind of new version of totalitarian, a new totalitarian society. Like, I, I would like to see disclosure happen within a world of freedom where we actually can have some transparency from our governments in which we actually can get answers that are meaningful and in which our governments are responsive to the will of the people. And my greatest fear is that we're very rapidly moving into a world in which that's not going to happen and in which we will have total control over, you know, I mean, most digital media uh, avenues of information, communication, and so forth. So when a narrative is rolled out and and people like us will not have a, a reasonable chance to, to um, argue with that narrative or get anyone to hear us. And I, right. I think that's, unfortunately, the world we're moving into. We, we hope for the opposite. Yeah, I've been a little bit of a downer lately, so <laughs> I, I hope for the opposite as well. Now, hopefully podcasting stays free and open, and at least we have one avenue to bypass the mainstream. Someone actually said, uh, Dolan's the new Dr. Doom. That was the old nickname for Ed Damon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I read, I think it was in a YouTube comment, and I was like, oh, damn, am I that much of a downer? But yeah, maybe. I just, um, I try to be if a realist. If that makes us the Fantastic Four, I'm okay for it. Yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> what, what was, I didn't hear that. Say that again. If that makes us the Fantastic Four, I'm all for it. I like it. Yeah, you guys are pretty good. You you are <laughs> actually all really interesting, and you ask great questions as well. I think you, it sounds like you have a good time too. Oh, it's uh, we love the topic. We love we love all the cases, and uh, it's been it's been a fun ride. We're kind of in the middle of a you know a modern day UFO wave here, and it seems to be you know the best version of it so far. So. I've never connected with you guys before, but I have to say, like, I'm really enjoying this, and you all seem like really like into it and knowledgeable. And it's been it's fun for me to to talk about this with you. Uh, you know, you know, Richard, it's uh, for us. We don't usually do interviews, uh, so we we've only reached out to a few, very few number of uh, speakers uh, and people who are uh, knowledgeable on the topic, um, because sometimes we find that the interview, you know, when you have someone on, it's not as entertaining as this interview has been for us. Uh, so it's always nice to when we have, you know, speakers on the subject like yourself on where we can just have a, you know, a good time and a little more free flow of information and free flow discussion rather than, you know, just a, a very hard, yeah. this is what I know and this is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's that. <laughs> we like, a, yeah, very cool. we enjoy it when the interview starts with, uh, let me fill up my glass of wine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could tell the listeners I I had forgotten we were doing this interview, and I had a full, very tall glass of wine before we started. Amazing. And I'm still working on. We glass fully knew two. we were doing this interview, and most of us. <laughs> yeah. <have been> <laughs> yeah. That's a recipe for success, man. I, That's I, how you I, podcast. I mean, I agreed yeah. to do the interview, and then I just totally forgot. It, w it was last minute. <laughs> so you messaged me. <laughs> I do the show and I forgot. We got it. Yeah, we text them all the time. <laughs> so I was a little embarrassed about that. No. But the thing is, you know, I, I actually love this subject. I love the subject of UFOs. Like, it makes me crazy at times. 
the community can make you crazy. You know, we've all been, we've all seen it. And like, there's a lot of yeah. uh, personalities and egos and all of that. But it's the thing that keeps me coming back is the subject itself. It's like, this is a phenomenon that is absolutely fascinating and it's profound. It's it is. totally of the highest level of significance. And I just can't leave it alone. We appreciate you doing the work. I mean, you're one, yeah, as Braden said, you're one of the few guests we've had on and it's been a blast. And we've, you know, we've definitely followed you and some, as you said, there is some personalities who can, you know, make for a tough interview or the ego gets in the way, but this one's been a blast and we, uh, we can't thank you enough for taking it on short notice. What a pleasure. Thank you, all of you guys for, uh, for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Now, if people aren't familiar with your work, where, uh, where can people support you the best? Do you have a website? Yeah, I've got or? two websites. Uh, I have Richard Olin Press with all my books and I've got Richard Olin Members, which is really where I do all of my work. So Richard Olin Members. I put content up there every week, m multiple times a week. I've got a YouTube channel. Just type my name in. And um, I have social media as well. But um, basically, Richard Olin Members is really where everything is happening. And I've, I mean, I've got, it's a paywall, but there's a lot of free stuff there as well. It's like, you can just go there. It's got lots of articles, audio, video, and all of that stuff. No, you're entitled to the financial support for all your hard work, so. It's the only way to survive. Like, yeah. I have to, um, if I want to do this on a full-time basis, I've, I've had to find a way to su support myself. And awesome. so, this is my best solution at the time. And by the way, we did want to do a quick plug for Contact in the Desert, which was oh, what this was all about. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Remember? <laughs> Remember that part? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's, uh -oh. what, that's what uh, happens when you have too much fun. I, well, so we're doing Contact in the Desert. Uh, I'm doing a couple of presentations. This is all virtual video. Um, I'm doing two lectures and a live panel. And that's all on the weekend of uh, June 25th, 26th, 27th. They're about, and I would recommend people check it out. It's actually quite reasonable. This is virtual, but it's good. Uh, I've, I've talked to all the folks organizing it, and that's the weekend of the last weekend of June, June 25th. They got, the 20th. I mean, our listeners, we've, we've had a whole bunch of speakers on the show doing interviews. It's literally the who's who of the who's who's going to be there uh, and speaking. So if yeah. this at all interests you, if this is a topic, you're definitely going to want to check it out. Uh, even uh, there's we might be we're going to be there as well on the twenty fifth, twenty eighth. Yeah, and and I'll be I'll do I'll do lectures, but I'll be available for Q and A after the lectures, so it's all live virtual, and I will be there. So I mean, there people will have the opportunity to do some interaction with myself and other speakers as well. Yeah, it's a the cool thing about a virtual conference is you don't have to miss any of the panels. You can go back and watch them all on demand if you miss them live. Totally, so. absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know. For better or for worse, that's the world we're moving toward. I mean, I I like the in-person, you know, shake your hands, look someone in the eye. But the fact is, I've done a number of virtual events, some that I've organized myself and others I participated in, and they can be done very well. That's just the reality. And I think this will be done very well. Definitely. Make sure to, we'll put all the links to Richard Richard's work and Contact in the Desert in the show notes. Don't miss it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Good. Awesome. Lots of fun. I'm Richard Olin, and you're listening to Alien Theorists Theorizing. All right, as we always say at the end of these things, keep those eyes on the skies. Mm -hmm.